Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the mounting pressure on President Biden to retaliate against Iran for the drone strike on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three American soldiers and wounded 34. Joining us to discuss what options Biden has short of striking Iran and widening the war in the Middle East is Nicholas Harris, Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Bashevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security, and he is the author of From the Bottom Up, A Strategy for U.S. Military Support for Syria's Armed Opposition. He conducted an extensive study on Iran's proxies in the Middle East for the National Defense University. Then, after 160 attacks by pro-Iranian militias, because an incoming drone was mistaken for a U.S. drone returning from a mission, resulting in the deaths of U.S. soldiers, we'll examine how much the presence of U.S. troops in the region, who are fighting a defeated enemy ISIS, will now become the reason we will fight Iran. Joining us is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as the Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, and is currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies. We'll discuss his article at Responsible Statecraft, Bring U.S. Troops Home from the Middle East Now. Then finally, we will speak with one of 25 historians of the Civil War and the Reconstruction Era who have filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court to bar Trump from the ballot in Colorado under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Joining us is Alan Lickman a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, a surefire way of predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. He has a new weekly show at 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays at Alan Lickman YouTube and is a signatory to a Supreme Court amicus brief in support of the attempt by Colorado to remove Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. 
So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Nicholas Harris, who is a Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute and a former Middle East Security Program Manager at the Institute for the Study of War, where he was Director of Government Relations responsible for Russia and Eurasia. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas served as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Beshevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for New American Security, and he's the author of From the Bottom Up, A Strategy for U.S. Military Support, for Syria's armed opposition, and he's conducted an extensive study on Iran's proxies in the Middle East for the National Defense University. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nicholas Harris. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Nick. And the deaths of the three uh, U.S. servicemen on the uh, border inside Jordan, on the border near both Syria and Iraq, and obviously there were the 34 others that have been injured, maybe seriously injured, because they were all sleeping in, a, in barracks when they were struck. This is not the first attack, though, by Iranian proxies. Since October the 17th, there have been 160 attacks. And, of course, President Biden has said on Sunday in uh, South Carolina that the United States shall respond after this drone strike that killed the three U.S. troops. So how do you expect uh, Biden to respond in this election year? Well, Ian, you know, President Biden and his team are in a difficult position. Uh, Biden, on the personal level, is a fighter, um, and he will want to demonstrate to the American people, first and foremost, uh, but also to Iran and to the wider world, because the Biden administration team views Iran as being emboldened by Russia and China in the Middle East. Uh, Iran believing that it has sort of great power, top cover, to intensify its campaign via proxies against the United States. And so there's going to be intense pressure within the White House to conduct overt military attacks against targets that will make Iran feel the pain, so to speak, and have second thoughts about continuing to escalate against the U.S. and the region. So I would suspect that the Biden team would take a page out of Israel's playbook, so to speak, and you know, include Iranian commanders and operatives um, and Iranian-controlled arms depots especially in Syria. I think that's where they would probably respond first um, and hit the Iranians hard enough in those in Syria um, and potentially in Iraq, although that's in a delicate state right now, the U.S.-Iraqi relationship, um, to send the signal to Tehran that the next step is for the United States to consider uh, attacks against Iran inside Iran itself. So will this establish deterrence? I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham is saying we don't deter Iran anymore. And it's true that we've been signaling for the longest time, going back to the JCPOA, the P5 plus one talks, that we're trying to avoid a confrontation with Iran. Can you strike Iranian proxies or Iranian bases in Syria and 
re-establish deterrence or do you have to uh, strike them at home, which of course is an incredibly risky uh, move, which could lead to escalation? Well, that's the best question to ask. And I think right now in the Pentagon, in the White House, there's significant deliberations about two elements. One, if you're able to carry off an operation, perhaps not using over military means, but more clandestine means, can you be able to describe it as a response? Can you describe it as a response to Iranian-backed proxy attacks that killed U.S. service members? Uh, or do you actually have to be very open with what you do? And the, the challenge here, Ian, is that I do think significant geopolitics are at play. Um, we've seen that since the beginning of the war in Gaza, the United States has tried to compartmentalize its support for Israel's military campaign against Hamas in Gaza as something that's separate from the broader U.S. presence in the Middle East, um, in Iraq and Syria especially, to counter uh, the reemergence of ISIS. The Iranians have not allowed the Biden team to do that. And the Iranians are explicitly, through their proxies, linking U.S. support for Israel in the IDF's campaign in Gaza uh, to the broader U.S. presence in the region. And my personal assessment is that Russia, which has you know, military presence, significant military presence in Syria, which is looking to expand its influence in the Middle East, but also to cut the U.S., quote-unquote, down to size because of U.S. support for Ukraine in a war that's viewed by Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, as essential to the future of Russia, uh, strategically and, I would say, metaphysically, from his point of view, that the Russians and the Chinese, the Chinese wanted to see the United States bogged down in the Middle East at a time when the Biden administration is really trying to pivot to compete with China and Asia, um, I believe the Iranians have a different threat assessment now and that they are willing to escalate significantly against the United States in the region because they have geopolitical top cover from Russia and China. And that one of the dynamics we should follow very closely right now is does the Biden administration decide that, look, they can strike inside of Syria, um, potentially, they could potentially strike inside of Iraq, but that perhaps they would have to assume more risk and conduct attacks against Iranian targets in areas of Western Syria where the Russians have, for all intents and purposes, an air umbrella. So to take the lesson from the Israelis that conduct attacks in that part of Syria, or if that's not enough to reestablish deterrence, does the Biden administration decide, look, um, the death of American soldiers um, requires a response, forceful response against Iranian military targets potentially in the Iranian territory. And if that's the case, then we are rapidly potentially heading to escalation because the Iranians um, seem to believe that this is a moment where they can reverse the U.S. military buildup, especially in the core Middle East, Iraq, Syria, etc., um, that has happened since September 11, 2001. So apparently, though, this a, a drone attack on the U.S. base, Tower 22, in Jordan, near the borders of uh, Syria and Iraq, were conducted by either uh, one of these two Iraqi groups, 
Hatayb Hezbollah or the, or the New Jaba movement. But you're saying that even if that is true, it's more likely that the U.S. would, would because of, after all, the U.S. has just recently begun formal talks with Iraqi leaders to limit U.S. presence, and the Iraqi government is unhappy about the U.S. presence, which is there to combat the residue of uh, the Islamic State. So you think it's much more likely then that they would strike inside of Syria than inside of Iraq? Yes, and I think that's because Syria, uh, for all intents and purposes, is it is an operational environment where there are a significant number of Iranian, Iranian, not just Iranian proxy targets. One prominent one of which, which would be in the general area of operations of U.S. forces in Syria, is the Imam Ali base, which is on the Assad government-controlled side of the Euphrates River in southeast Syria. And that's a major Iranian installation. It's known to all. Um, it's not one of the. It's one of those sites that, along with another site, which is near the, um, uh, it's near in Homs Governorate. Basically, well, there's a Syrian government-controlled air base there from which drones have been launched uh, periodically at Israel, and then that's in the the area of operations where the Tanaf. Uh, that border U, U, Jordanian Israeli border Jordanian Syrian border base is that space the T4 base in Homs Homs Governorate in the, and then the Imam Ali base in Deir Ezzor Governorate are two prominent uh, known Iranian um, presence areas that would be easily accessible to U.S. forces uh, if they chose to retaliate in that way. So there are targets. There's also the signaling targets. So if you decide to respond inside of Syria, you may respond in areas where the Russians, like I said, have um, air have anti-air assets as a way to signal to the Russians to rein the Iranians in. Um, there is risk with that, however, because if Russian forces decide to either prevent by sending the signal to the Americans that. They will turn on anti-air uh, assets that they control, or alternatively, uh, they don't say anything, the U.S. goes ahead, and the U.S. aircraft happens to be shot down by Russian anti-air uh, batteries in western Syria, then you have a great power escalation. So there's a lot of dynamics at play here, and I think what we have to focus on is that the Biden administration is going to respond. They're going to need to respond forcefully enough to send a signal to Iran, its, its partners in the wider world, that the United States um, isn't an easy target and U.S. forces aren't so-called sitting ducks. And it's also going to want to make it that response in such a way that it reinforces the American uh, public's belief in Joe Biden as a candidate 2024 this year. But also, and here's the more difficult piece of this, Ian, doesn't set the U.S. and Iran, and potentially Russia, in the case of the Middle East, on an escalatory path towards an even wider conflict. So what happened recently when the Israelis struck and killed a number of high-ranking uh, Iranian intelligence officials inside the Russian-controlled area of Syria? Was there a deconfliction deal, or did Israel just go ahead and do it? 
So the the Russians have generally had a modus operandi with the Israelis related to these attacks, and that the Russians have not turned on the anti-air systems, which has um, allowed the Israelis to conduct strikes against the Iranians inside Syria. Um, the Russians and Iranians, historically, although they've been allies in Syria, have also competed for long-term influence because the Russians view Syria as part of the Soviet inheritance during the Cold War. The Russians had their own strategy for expanding their influence in the Mediterranean and Africa, of which their you know presence and military infrastructure in Syria is an important component of that. The Iranians view Syria as a very important, um, even essential uh, strategic space to apply pressure both on Israel, but also the United States and others. So there is one school of thought that the Russians, if the Russians aren't willing to confront the Israelis, why would they be willing to confront the Americans? And that may also play into the calculations of U.S. officials and make, make Syria even targets in Western Syria, which would send a big signal as well, on the list for responses. The other element here, of course, is that uh, the Iranians have been very strong allies of the Russians and have provided the Russians uh, with Shahed drones. And these Shahed drones, so-called kamikaze drones or loitering munitions, um, have been very uh, effective for the Russians to apply significant pressure on the Ukrainians, both military targets, but also uh, and uh, destructively against civilian targets in Ukraine. And that partnership that has been forged since February 2022 between the Iranians and Russians really adds a different dynamic here because the calculation in Washington has to be if we conduct X type of attacks against Y type of targets. And if you want to deter the Iranians, it would have to include the Iranian targets. Are we gonna have Z geopolitical effects, broader effects? And if those Z geopolitical effects actually don't stop the escalation pathway, then there's the risk that the next, either you, you, you send a signal more broadly that the United, States can be, the United States can be ignored even when it uses military force, or alternatively, it forces the United States into a higher escalation chain from which it won't be able to climb back down. And that's why this is a very important, this is an inflection point, because up to this point, Iranian-backed proxy attacks against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, uh, they've created technical casualties in the sense of people being injured. But this is the first time that you've had a... A uh, number of U.S. personnel killed in one strike, and in a strike uh, in which U.S. forces are in a stationary base, a base that is symbolic, uh, the, that presence along the Syrian-Jordanian border near Tanaf um, is symbolic in the sense that it is considered by the U.S. to be a key listening point and monitoring point uh, for uh, broader operations against ISIS, but here's the other component to this, is that the Iranian-backed axis of resistance has viewed that Tanaf base as uh, a place where the Israelis operate a listening post quietly, and as a way for the United States and Israel to monitor the broader Iranian-backed axis because 
of the so-called land bridge, the ability for Iran to supply Hezbollah and Lebanon and also its proxies on the Golan Heights between Syria and Israel via land route that would go that can be monitored from that point. So target in Tanif area is a signal from the Iranian-backed Iran and its proxies that there that there's just a new game. There's a new game now. And the deadly game and the rules of that game, Ian, are now being negotiated. And this is where we're in an escalation. This is where we're both in an inflection point and a potential escalation point. So just in closing, to summarize, Iran believes uh, with good reason, that Russia and China has its back. China, of course, uh, wants the U.S. to be continually bogged down in the Middle East so that they don't pivot to Asia as Obama wanted to do and, and Biden wants to do. But we don't know how far they will go in getting in having Iran's back. And on the same day that the Iranian proxy's drone attack in Jordan, Iran's revolutionary Islamic Revolutionary Guards, IRGC, seized an oil tanker in the Persian Gulf. So you'd think that China not, would not be happy about international traffic, particularly in the Red Sea as well, being interfered with, as the Houthis are doing. So the long and the short it is, Biden is going to do something, has to do something, says he will do something. But whether he goes after Iran itself or Iran's bases in Syria is the real question. And it seems it's more likely he'll go after the bases in Syria. I would say that the the chances that the U.S. will actually target Iranian operatives, commanders, and assets, most likely in Syria, but potentially elsewhere, is higher than it's ever been. Because the U.S. has typically gone after proxy or proxy assets, um, but now that you have U.S. personnel that have been killed in this attack, I think the rules of the game are changing and that the new rule of the U.S. and specifically President Biden himself will want to write those rules and impose them on Iran. Well, Nicholas Harris, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's a Senior Director for Strategy and Innovation at the New Lines Institute. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas serves as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich, Jr., USA Fellow at the Center for a New American Security and is the author of From the Bottom Up, A Strategy for U.S. Military Support for Syria's Armed Opposition. And he's conducted an extensive study on Iran's proxies in the Middle East for the National Defense University. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking at whether or not the presence of U.S. troops in the region who are fighting a defeated enemy, ISIS, will now become the reason we fight Iran. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Paul Piller, who served for 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as the Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf and South Asia. He also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, where he was Deputy Chief of the Center. And he's now currently a Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies, and has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Bring U.S. Troops Home from the Middle East Now. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Pillar. Thank you, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul, and you argue in your article that approximately 2,400 American soldiers remain stationed in Syria and Iraq, ostensibly to fight ISIS. But after this weekend's casualties, they may become the reason we fight Iran. That is intolerable. You also have to add to that, I think, Paul, that uh, if we go to war against Iran, which would be catastrophic, we might be doing so on the basis of a mistake made at that base in Jordan where they thought the drone was an incoming U.S. drone as opposed to the one that uh, struck the base and killed three U.S. soldiers and wounded 34. So that's the latest reporting we're hearing. Yeah, well, that would be an example of how um, when you put military forces in a situation where mistakes can easily spin out of control and escalate into something bigger, uh, we we could come to regret it. You know, I, I think um, clearly the fact that uh, three lives were lost among our service members is what is seems to be propelling the administration into uh, possibly a more forceful response than the sort of tit-for-tat retaliation that we've uh, come to read about uh, in Iraq and to a lesser extent Syria uh, now, especially over these last three and a half months uh, since the Israeli assault in Gaza began, and you've had all the you know, angry reactions uh, against the United States as a backer of Israel as well as against Israel itself. There have been dozens of attacks against the U.S manned installations in western Iraq and northeastern Syria just over these past three months. This happens to be the first one in that area. It also happens to be just across the border in Jordan, but it's very close to Syria. Uh, the first one that has claimed lives. Uh, but we, you know, we, we should perhaps uh, you know, put it in that larger context that uh, uh, we've, we've been running the risk of this sort of thing for some time. But the risk-benefit is is dubious, isn't it? If there's very little residue of the Islamic State, which is the justification for why the U.S. is in, both in Syria and Iraq. I I think the risk-to-benefit ratio is unfortunately very, very high. Uh, Yes, the declared reason for us still having all of the troops in Syria that we have and most of the ones who are stationed in Iraq is to combat ISIS. Uh, ISIS is nowhere near uh, the sort of phenomenon it was back around 2014 when it uh, claimed control over large parts of uh, northwestern Iraq and northeastern Syria. I mean, it is still out there. It is a group. It has shown some resilience. But I think the main question is, even to the extent that ISIS may be a concern, how much good does these relatively small uh, deployments like the 900 people in Syria, 
how much good can can they and do they do uh, in keeping ISIS down? And my answer would be, you know, little if anything. Uh, the main mission now seems to have become for these various isolated installations that we have is their own protection. Um, and so that's how you get these uh, tit-for-tat uh, sequences that we've gotten into. Uh, even if combating ISIS was the original mission, it's, uh, it's not really the main concern of the troops involved or the people who command them. And the idea that Iran is the main problem and that these axes of resistance through its proxies are, are what the U.S. is resisting and now there's a real possibility, or at least the arguments on the part of people like Senator Lindsey Graham, who feels that the United States no longer deters Iran, that Biden is weak, and he's sort of goading him into actually attacking Iran itself. It's worth noting that Iran's, one of its biggest enemies is ISIS, the Islamic State, the very people that we're supposed to be in the Middle East to eradicate. Uh, That's right. And if we're concerned about combating what remains of ISIS and keeping it down, uh, the country, other than the Iraqis and the Syrians themselves and the local people who became disenchanted with ISIS's brutal methods when it had its mini-state several years ago, the country that's probably done more than any other to keep it down is Iran, acting as an ally of the Syrian regime and acting as a major uh, force in Iraq, uh, one that has cooperated a lot with the Iraqi regime. Uh, and that does reflect the fact, as you correctly note, that uh, Iran is very much an enemy of ISIS. Iran has suffered uh, major terrorist attacks. There were a couple of major bombings in the heart of Tehran several years ago. And then just recently, just earlier this month, uh, was this bombing in another city that killed uh, 80-some uh, Iranian citizens. Uh, it was part of a this kind of memorial uh, ceremony for their late leader Soleimani. Um, so the Iranians have uh, strong reasons uh, to take a lead in being an anti-ISIS force, and uh, I would say let them do it. Uh, this is a shared interest that the United States and the Iranians have, and if the Iranians are willing to do much of the heavy lifting and run most most of the risks. Uh, of terrorist reprisals and so on, I say let them do it. But at this point, things have changed, have they not, since Hamas's brutal attack on Israel on October the 7th and this three-month-long war that shows no signs of ending. And it seems that Netanyahu, who's polling at about 15% popularity within Israel itself, has every reason to drag this war out, not to the least of which is that uh, he may well... Uh, want Trump to come back, and every day that this war drags on, Biden is twisting in the wind, right? And uh, his poll numbers are going down. Well, un- unfortunately, you've, you've put your finger on one of the things that have sus- has sustained uh, you know, the, what the horrible situation in Gaza and the risk of it expanding further in ways that could drag in, in the United States, and that is that Benjamin Netanyahu survives politically and perhaps legally as well, uh, given the the corruption charges hanging over him, as long as the war goes on. And once the war ends, uh, his government is over, his coalition is over, and he's probably going to be uh, facing a legal reckoning as well. Um, He would like it, I'm sure, to 
uh, get the United States more directly involved, um, going beyond you know, what's going on in the Red Sea and Yemen, and a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Iran, which I agree would be uh, catastrophic from our point of view, unfortunately is something that uh, uh, would, would play into Netanyahu's hands. So how much, how seriously should we take Senator Lindsey Graham and others who are pushing Biden, suggesting that he's weak on the Middle East and uh, he's not deterring Iran? Well, we need to take it seriously as a threat of the sort of thing that might push the administration into doing something foolish. Uh, there's no question that that sort of prospect of being uh, even more heavily criticized by your political opponents at home uh, can and does uh, often affect U.S. policy in unfortunate ways. Uh, you know, what I would say directly to the likes of Lindsey Graham is, you talk about restoring deterrence, you know, what what you forget is the other side wants deterrence too. And, uh, you know, if, if we attack an adversary, then the adversary's uh, decision-making thinking goes along the lines of, well, we need to reestablish deterrence. And that's exactly the sort of thing that we've seen on a smaller scale with the tit-for-tats uh, that's taken place between U.S. forces and these various uh, militias in Syria and Iraq. Um, it, it, you know, what we've done has far from deterred and, and cowed uh, the other side, has tended more often to, distim to stimulate uh, still further attacks. And, and the risk of, uh, of a, a much wider war, once you're talking about directly hitting the Iranians, uh, is, is, is simply uh, uh, too great to contemplate. So do you think that Biden has any kind of a escape hatch because it looks as if this was uh, an accident or a miscalculation on the part of uh, the U.S. base in Jordan who misread what they thought was a returning U.S. drone from a mission over Iraq, when in fact it was a drone from one of these Iranian proxies operating inside of Iraq. Well, I, I, no, I don't think that I don't think the, the president or his advisors would see that as buying them any uh, any leeway. Uh, you know, critics would still say, "Look, uh, you know, the drone that really did come in was was an enemy one, <clears throat> and we've got got to do something to respond." I I think um, perhaps the the president and his advisors would be thinking in terms. I hope they're thinking at least in these terms of something short of what would constitute an direct attack, certainly on Iranian territory. But maybe you know another reprisal inside Iraq um, against some targets that could be defined as not only an Iranian-backed militia, but perhaps this time something that would be, you know, an Iranian installation with Iranian personnel, just like uh, we had personnel in Jordan that were, were hit in this attack. Um, I, I think the, the president is going to um, uh, try very hard to avoid uh, direct military attacks on, on the, the territory of Iran itself. I hope I'm right about that, but, but I might not be. Well, it is... Pretty clear, isn't it, uh, Paul, that the American people are weary of these wars in the Middle East after Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, do you think that's in any way changed because of the de death of American soldiers? Obviously, it's politically impossible for Biden to ignore that fact. But I don't imagine that the American people, even in an election year, uh, 
have an appetite for another war, do they? Well, it then the, the raises the question of whether you know the average American citizen is going to analyze these things in the way that well that you and I are are doing right now in terms of how one thing can lead to another and how one kind of reprisal might escalate into something bigger. So I, I think you know many uh, you know persons on the street would say, well, yeah, I don't I don't want a bigger war, but you know if the Iranians did something nasty, then you know, we gotta we gotta pay them back somehow. Um, and so there might be a belief, a rather dangerous belief, that yes, we can uh, we can calibrate our response and send a message and restore deterrence, and that's all falls short of a, the kind of war that we don't want to have. I, I think a lot of uh, ordinary American thinking might be along those lines, and that unfortunately uh, does not necessarily keep us from from the risks of escalation into something bigger. Well, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, that uh, Iran is not a very popular country with with most Americans, going back to the hostage crisis in the Carter administration. And they're constantly, you know, talking about the great Satan and death to America. They're not real popular. So maybe some kind of strike against Iranian bases or whatever in in Syria and in Iraq would be more likely on the Pentagon's agenda, as opposed to going after its proxies, which even the president himself mentioned recently that going after the uh, Houthi proxies in in Yemen was essentially futile. That you know he said that you know we're going to go after them, but it's not going to change. Yeah. Well, I, I have to know. You know, one of, one of the problems here is it's become a general part of discourse to talk about Iranian proxies, you know, I, I like to look at the dictionary definition of proxy, which is somebody acting on someone else's behalf. And uh, part part of the, the unfortunate tendency that American discourse on these things has taken is to uh, start assuming that there's an Iranian hand in the sense of direction or control with anybody who has had any kind of association or gotten any kind of aid uh, from Iran, and that's simply not true. And I would point to, to the, the biggest, most destructive and outrageous action, which was the recently, which was the Hamas attack on Israel last October 7th. You know, based on the press reporting, the, the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th was not one that had an Iranian hand in the sense of direction and control. And there were reports that the Iranians were just as surprised by that attack as the Israelis and everyone else. Um, that's that's about as egregious uh, an action by a uh, Iran-backed group you can think of. What Hamas did October seventh, and it wasn't at uh, by all indications, it wasn't at uh, Iran's direction. Well, you could make the case that because Hamas is a Sunni operation and the Iranians are Shia, that this is not how the Shias operate. You don't go off and kill people without, you know, a fatwa, right? So maybe they kept it from the Iranians because Iran may not have approved of attacking civilians in the way that Hamas did. Well, I don't know how much, you know, religious dimensions really figured into it. I think it was more of a matter of the Hamas uh, leaders who were responsible for organizing the attack wanting to keep it as closely held as they possibly could, to, and they successfully did so, uh, to keep it very much a surprise attack. Right. Well, let's hope uh, that uh, wiser heads prevail here 
And I thank you for joining us, Paul Pillar. Yeah, my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Pillar, who has served for over 30 years as an analyst at the CIA, in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Previously, he served as the Chief of Analytics Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. And he also headed the Assessments and Information Group of the Director of Central Intelligence's Counterterrorism Center, where he was Deputy Chief of that center. He's currently a professor of security studies at Georgetown University and a member of the Center for Peace and Security Studies and has an article at Responsible Statecraft, Bring U.S. Troops Home from the Middle East Now. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with one of 25 historians of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era who have filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court to bar Trump from the ballot in Colorado under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alan Lichtman, who's a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a new weekly show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Thursdays at Alan Lickman YouTube. And he is a signatory to a Supreme Court amicus brief in support of the attempt by Colorado to remove Donald Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Alan. And you are one of 25 historians of the Civil War and the Reconstruction era who have filed the U.S. Supreme Court brief in support of Colorado's attempt to remove Donald Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. And what I find extraordinary reading your amicus brief is the evidence there is that explodes, demolishes Trump and his lawyer's argument that the presidency is not an office as described in the 14th Amendment and that only the only congressional action can stop someone from running and that Trump did not incite an insurrection. Well, my God, it's all there in black and white, isn't it, in the Constitution? That's right. Look, uh, so many Supreme Court decisions recently have relied on historical analysis. For example, the 2008 Heller decision for the first time in over 200 years establishing an individual right to keep and bear arms or the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. So we decided as professional historians that we would provide uh, expert uh, guidance to the United States Supreme Court on the relevant history. And we would do so based on contemporary evidence by decision makers 
and our own expertise in historical analysis. You know, we've produced between us well over 100 books, won numerous national awards, headed organizations like uh, the American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians. And as you say, we made essentially three points in our brief. Number one, that the president is clearly covered by the disqualification clause, section three of the 14th Amendment. Secondly, that section three was put into the Constitution to enduringly guard against insurrection and not just to punish ex-Confederates. And three, that it's self-enforcing, doesn't require an act of Congress and doesn't even require a conviction of, of any kind. And we understand the Supreme Court's going to do what the Supreme Court is going to do, but we hope that whatever the Supreme Court does, it takes into account the analysis presented by 25 of the most eminent historians in the country. So in your brief to the Supreme Court, let me just quote from it, quoting, during the congressional debates, this is for the debating the 14th Amendment, Senator Reverdy Johnson of Maryland, a Democratic opponent of the 14th Amendment, challenged sponsors as to why Section 3 omitted the president. Republican Senator Lot Morrill of Maine, an influential backer of Congressional Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment, corrected the senator. Morrill replied, quote, Let me call the senator's attention to the words, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. Senator Johnson then admitted his error, and no other senator questioned whether Section 3 covered the president. So there you have it. I mean, this is talk about originalism. This is originalism staring you in the face, isn't it? Absolutely right. This is what we call direct evidence, not circumstantial evidence, but direct evidence from the mouths of the decision makers themselves that clearly the 14th Amendment covered the president. We have other direct evidence as well, uh, and that pertains to the 1872 debates over amnesty, you know, uh, providing amnesty for those disqualified and the decision makers at the time. These were fervent uh, partisan Republicans, fervent anti-Confederates, and they worried that Jefferson Davis, if he was given amnesty, could run for president of the United States, recognizing that without amnesty, he was prohibited from running for president and would only be allowed to run for president if he was given amnesty. And the decision makers explicitly recognized that direct evidence again, and decided not to give Jefferson Davis and some other leaders of the Confederacy amnesty because they quite explicitly said if Davis got amnesty and you lifted his disqualification to run for president, he could well run for president on the Democratic ticket. He was only in, in, in his early 60s, as they pointed out. So... How do you think these originalists like Thomas and Alito and others are going to deal with this? Is this going to be another Bush v. Gore where they'll make a political decision as opposed to honor their own 
their own stated methodology of originalism? Well, if they were to follow their own methodology, the historical evidence is clear. Trump is covered. The 14th Amendment continues to apply, and you don't need another act of Congress or a conviction. Jefferson Davis admitted that the day the states ratified the 14th Amendment, he was disqualified. And in fact, after he was indicted for treason, he tried to use the argument of his instant automatic disqualification to quash his treason uh, uh, trial, claiming that that would constitute double jeopardy. I don't see how they get around these points, but uh, you know, I'm always loath to predict what the Supreme Court might do and the ways in which they might try to work around uh, this clear historical evidence, which, by the way, has already been picked up by numerous uh, media outlets, all of them very favorable and very positive. I'm not sure there's ever been an amicus brief to the Supreme Court with the weight of such a large and distinguished group of historians. So one historian who I know well, Sean Willens at Princeton, he's not a signatory, but in an article in The Guardian about your Supreme Court amicus brief, which again is, is very positive in terms of supporting what you're doing, Alan, he said those that are arguing against the clear interpretation of the 14th Amendment by their reasoning, Sean Willens writes, Trump's misdeeds aside... Enforcement of the 14th Amendment poses a greater threat to our wounded democracy than Trump's candidacy. In the name of defending democracy, they would speciously enable a man who did the wounding and now promises to do much more. So that's what we're faced with. Absolutely. And of course, that's a political argument. That's an argument based upon, you know, the threat that Trump poses to democracy, one in which I heartily endorse But let me stress, we did not make any political arguments. We did not make any legal arguments. We stuck to the straight history, as you say, which is exactly what the originalists and the textualists on the Supreme Court should take into account. And remember, throughout much of our history, conservatives have claimed to be the guardians of the strict construction of the Constitution, as opposed to those liberals who tend to read their own values and their own politics into the Constitution. Let me also address what I consider to be a non sequitur argument that the voters should decide this rather than the Constitution. That makes no sense. This is just like any other disqualification based on age or residence or birth. If you're disqualified from the Constitution, that's prior to the voters doing anything at all. And who for five years mongered the claim that under the Constitution, Barack Obama should not be allowed to serve as president because falsely and allegedly he was born outside the United States. Now, you know, Trump supporters have stood that claim exactly on its head and said we should not even consider constitutional disqualifications, all of which stand on the same level. Well, just to continue with, I know it's a political argument, but what Wilentz is arguing in The in the Guardian is that the conservatives face a choice between disqualifying Trump or shredding the foundation of their judicial methodology. 
and if the court does not honour the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, it will trash the constitutional defence of democracy designed following slavery's abolition. It will guarantee, at a minimum, political chaos no matter what the voters decide in November, and it will quite possibly pave the way for a man who has vowed that he will, if necessary, rescind the Constitution in order to impose a dictatorship of revenge. So that's what's at stake. I know your amicus brief is a neutral, non-political argument, but surely that's hovering out there, isn't it? Absolutely. And the media hasn't picked up on another part of our brief, which I think is very important. Again, it's straight history, but it directly relates to the arguments Wilentz made about the dangers of allowing disqualified insurrectionists to run for office. After amnesty, which covered almost all the ex-Confederates except Jefferson Davis and a few others, they entered into government, including at least 20 who became governors of the 11 former Confederate states. And what did they do? They proceeded to snuff out democracy in those states by disqualifying African-Americans from voting and holding office in those states, first by intimidation and violence, and then later through laws and constitutional amendments like poll taxes, literacy tests, white primaries, and grandfather clauses. So you are operating at your own peril when you allow those insurrectionists who should be disqualified to enter into public office. What happened in the late 19th century in the former Confederate states when the ex-Confederates who had amnesty took office should be a very cautionary tale for the present. And the Supreme Court will take up this Colorado case on February the 8th, right? And in conclusion... You, uh, among the 25 historians, Alan, concluded in your amicus brief to the Supreme Court, the court should take cognizance that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment covers the present, it's forward-looking, and requires no additional acts of Congress for implementation. So it's, it's pretty cut and dried and simple, isn't it? I think it's pretty cut and dried. I guess the court, and we didn't get into contemporary stuff, but the court could decide that Trump really didn't engage in an insurrection, which I think, you know, would be an absurd finding. Of course he did, and every court that's looked at it found he did, and even the Colorado lower court that didn't disqualify him agreed that he had engaged in insurrection. The January 6th committee had overwhelming evidence that he had engaged in insurrection, which doesn't mean you have to be on the front lines and committing violence. Jefferson Davis wasn't on the front lines in the Civil War, but he was still part of the insurrection. But just in closing, though, Trump and his allies, which includes Elise Stefanik, the New York congresswoman, who's one of the top House leaders in the Republic on the Republican side, and is also a leading contender to be Trump's vice president, they've refused, and she and others have refused to commit to certifying the results of the November election should Trump lose. So <laughs> you're dealing with a constitutional wrecking ball here. It's amazing how conservatives have stood on its head, their traditional reverence for the Constitution 
and now not caring about the Constitution at all, only caring about grabbing and holding on to power. I don't believe that if Trump loses, presuming he becomes the nominee, is, isn't disqualified or, you know, is convicted of serious crimes and is bounced off the ticket, but presuming he becomes the nominee and losing, I have no doubt that he is not going to accept defeat or participate in any way in uh, the establishment of a new administration. But there is one difference here. He's out of power. He doesn't have this time the power and authority of the federal government, which he came within, you know, millimeters of using through martial law and, and other illegal methods. So we do have some safeguard here in that uh, Trump does not have the machinery of government behind him anymore or the moral authority of being the president. Well, Alan Lickman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My great pleasure, Ian, as always. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Lickman, who's a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency, the author of The Case for Impeachment and the Keys to This White House, a surefire way to predicting the next president. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, when against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. His most recent books are The Embattled Vote in America, The Case for Impeachment, and 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. And he has a new weekly show at 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays at Alan Lickman YouTube and is a signatory to a Supreme Court amicus brief in support of the attempt by Colorado to remove Donald Trump from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. And again, I've been speaking with Nicholas Harris, who's a senior director for strategy and innovation at the New Lions Institute. From 2016 to 2017, Nicholas serves as the 10th First Lieutenant Andrew J. Basevich Jr. USA Fellow at the Center for a New American Security and is the author of From the Bottom Up, A Strategy for U.S. Military Support for Serious Armed Opposition. And he's conducted an extensive study on Iran's proxies in the Middle East for the National Defense University. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past